Welcome to the July 16th, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll review the risk of bleeding after initiating treatment for acquired hemophilia A, examine the functional effect of antibodies leading to immune TTP and how this can be used as a biomarker. And finally, a blast from the past. We'll discuss a study that explores the intriguing possibility that a core component driving globin gene expression became active long ago. Our first topic examines data presented in the blood article entitled Bleeding and Response to Hemostatic Therapy in Acquired Hemophilia A, Results from the GTH-AH-01-2010 Study by Holstein and colleagues from Germany and Austria. Acquired Hemophilia A, or AHA, is an autoimmune disorder characterized by bleeding due to neutralizing antibodies against coagulation factor 8. More than 80% of those affected are men and women older than 65 years of age. In addition, approximately 10% of patients with AHA are women diagnosed during or after pregnancy. Patients typically present with unexplained excessive bleeding and a prolonged APTT. Bleeds most often occur in soft tissues, including muscles and skin, but also in the gastrointestinal and urogenital tracts. Bleeding in AHA can be severe or even life-threatening and is often difficult to treat. Immunosuppressive therapy, also known as IST, is used to suppress formation of anti-factor 8 autoantibodies and result in remission of AHA after several weeks or months. IST is recommended for all patients with AHA irrespective of their bleeding phenotype because of the high risk of bleeding and the associated morbidity. The current report by Holstein and colleagues takes advantage of data collected in a prospective observational study called GTH-AH-01-2010 that was conducted in 29 centers in Germany and Austria between 2010 and 2013. This study was initiated to better understand prognostic factors impacting outcomes and time to remission in patients with AHA. A cohort of 120 patients were treated with IST immediately after diagnosis, following a GTH consensus protocol. The results have already generated landmark papers on immunosuppression and serologic predictors of remission in AHA. IST has significant side effects in patients with AHA. However, not much is known about the magnitude of the bleeding risk and the risk of bleeds following the initiation of IST. This information would be very helpful in optimizing management of patients with AHA. Thus, the goal of the current study was to look more closely at bleeding events and response to hemostatic therapy in the GTH cohort. The team had measured factor VIII activity at baseline and weekly thereafter. Bleeding events were assessed by treating physicians. A total of 289 bleeds was recorded in 102 patients. 141 new bleeds started after immunosuppressive treatment was initiated and were observed in 59% of the patients. Severe bleeds occurring prior to initiation of IST lasted a median of 9 days, 
compared to two days for those occurring after IST was started. There was a mean rate of 0.27 bleeds per patient week before achieving partial remission. Weekly measured factor VIII activity was significantly associated with the bleeding rate, but only achieving factor VIII levels of greater or equal to 50% of normal abolished the risk of bleeding. Interestingly, a good World Health Organization performance status assessed at baseline was associated with a lower bleeding rate. Fortunately, hemostatic treatment was reported to be effective in 96% of bleeds. The study's authors concluded that the risk of new bleeds after a first diagnosis of AHA remains high until partial remission is achieved, and weekly measured factor VIII activity may help to assess the individual risk of bleeding. In an accompanying commentary, Jean Saint-Louis from the Université de Montréal in Canada notes that it is still not entirely clear why catastrophic bleeding may occur in AHA patients with factor VIII levels that would be considered of mild severity in congenital hemophilia. While inhibitory antibodies to factor VIII have weak interactions in vitro, these may be more powerful in vivo or in specific vascular beds. He also notes that defining the role of prophylactic hemostatic treatment is becoming even more important with emerging non-coagulation factor-based therapies such as emicizumab, a bispecific antibody that activates factors 9 and 10 to replace the actions of factor 8. The findings of Holstein et al. make an important contribution to defining the risk of bleeding in AHA, and lay the groundwork for future trials of hemostatic prophylaxis in this disorder. Next up, we'll discuss evidence from the blood article entitled Open ADAMTS-13 Induced by Antibodies is a biomarker for subclinical immune-mediated thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura by Ruse, Shelpie, and colleagues from multiple European TTP centers, led by Karen van Hoelbeek at KU Leuven in Belgium. A severe deficiency of the enzyme ADAMTS-13, induced by anti-ADAMTS-13 autoantibodies, causes the rare and life-threatening disorder immune-mediated thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, commonly known as ITTP. ADAMTS-13 is a protease that cleaves von Willebrand factor, or VWF. In ITTP, anti-ADAMTS-13 autoantibodies either enhance the clearance of ADAMTS-13 from the blood or inhibits its VWF processing activity. This results in accumulation of ultra-large VWF multimers, which spontaneously bind to platelets and lead to formation of microthrombi in small blood vessels. Consequently, patients suffer from microangiopathic hemolytic anemia and severe thrombocytopenia. Currently, ADAMTS-13 activity of less than 10% is a well-established biomarker to diagnose ITTP. However, how best to monitor and manage ITT patients during remission is not as well established. Some patients in remission can have ADAMTS-13 activity of less than 10%, or detectable anti-ADAMTS-13 autoantibodies. These patients have a higher risk for clinical relapse and are therefore often treated with rituximab. 
In this compelling study, the investigators used a monoclonal antibody that recognizes the unfolded form of ADAMPS-13 to show that anti-ADAMPS-13 autoantibodies from ITT patients induce an open ADAMPS-13 conformation. Moreover, they showed that the presence of this open conformation is a novel and sensitive biomarker for subclinical ITTP. ADAMPS-13 is a multi-domain enzyme that includes a metalloprotease domain, a disintegrin-like domain, a spacer region, thrombosbondin type 1 repeats, and two cub domains. The spacer region interacts with the cub domains when ADAMPS-13 is closed, but under high shear stress, its opening allows the cub domains to bind to VWF. These investigators had previously generated a murine anti-ADAMPS-13 monoclonal antibody called 1C4 that detects the spacer region in ADAMPS-13, but only when it is in an open conformation. In a prior study, the group used this unique antibody tool to show that ADAMPS-13 circulates in an open conformation during acute ITTP. However, the conformation of ADAMPS-13 was closed in the majority of ITTP patients in remission, when ADAMPS-13 activity was restored to greater than 50% and autoantibodies were undetectable. In the current study, they purified IgG from 18 acute ITTP patients and showed that 14 out of these 18 IgG samples were able to induce an open ADAMPS-13 conformation. They speculated that the three samples that failed to do so reflected a scenario in which opening autoantibodies were in a complex with ADAMPS-13 and therefore not available, or alternatively, were of the IgM or IgA class rather than IgG. They also obtained plasma from a new multicenter cohort of 197 ITTP patients and ran ELISA assays using the 1C4 antibody in order to monitor the conformation of ADAMPS-13. The open conformation was present not only in acute ITTP, but also in patients in remission where ADAMPS-13 activity was still less than 50% of normal. And, surprisingly, half of the patients with ADAMPS-13 activity of greater than 50% also had circulating ADAMPS-13 in the open conformation. These results suggest that open ADAMPS-13 is a novel biomarker to detect subclinical ITTP in patients during remission. Finally, a retrospective analysis on one ITTP patient showed that severe decreases in ADAMPS-13 activity to less than 10% were consistently preceded by the appearance of ADAMPS-13 in an open conformation. Although free anti-ADAMPS-13 antibodies were rarely detected, the patient responded transiently each time to rituximab. While further assessment in a larger cohort of patients is needed, this finding indicates that ADAMPS-13 conformation can be a sensitive biomarker to detect subclinical ITTP. According to Marie Scully from University College London Hospital in the UK, who wrote an accompanying commentary, these results suggest that whether anti-ADAMPS-13 antibody is present can be assessed by the conformation of circulating ADAMPS-13. If it is entirely in the closed conformation, further immunosuppression with rituximab or other agents could be avoided. Conversely, 
patients having detectable open ADAMTS-13, despite an increase in activity measurements, may require closer follow-up and potentially elective therapy to prevent overt relapse. Overall, these data bring us closer to a biomarker for clinicians treating TTP patients, which would allow them to monitor and identify any subclinical disease in the remission phase and improve clinical practice. Now for a review of the report published in Blood entitled An Evolutionary Ancient Mechanism for Regulation of Hemoglobin Expression in the Vertebrate Red Cells by Miata, Gillimans, Hockman, and colleagues led by Philipson at Erasmus University Medical Center in the Netherlands and Higgs at the University of Oxford in the UK. Hemoglobin, also referred to as Hb, is responsible for the oxygen transport function of erythrocytes and comprises more than 90% of their soluble protein. Each red cell contains approximately 250 million hemoglobin molecules. To attain these high numbers, expression of the Hb genes is activated by powerful distal erythroid-specific enhancers. Given the importance of hemoglobin in human physiology and its role in hemoglobinopathies such as alpha thalassemia, beta thalassemia, and sickle cell disease, the structure, regulation, and evolutionary origin of Hb genes and proteins have been intensively studied. The oxygen transport function of hemoglobin is thought to have arisen in the Cambrian period about 500 million years ago roughly coinciding to when ancestral vertebrates diverged into jawed and jawless vertebrates. Interestingly, the jawless species, such as lampreys and hagfish, may provide important insights into the evolutionary origins of vertebrate genomes, loci, and proteins. Recent phylogenetic analysis concluded that hemoglobins actually arose twice and independently from different ancestral globin proteins in the two major groups of vertebrates. The globin genes in jawless species are more similar to the CYGB gene encoding cytoglobin, a protein widely expressed in most vertebrates that usually does not have a role in oxygen transport. In jawed species, however, the ancestral gene is related to the canonical Hb genes. Thus, it appears that the oxygen-transporting activity of Hb genes in the two major branches of vertebrates arose by convergent evolution to independently achieve the same function. This then raises the question of whether the regulatory elements responsible for high-level expression of Hb genes in erythroid cells also evolved twice. The team of Miata, Gillimans, Hockman, and colleagues tackled this challenge with a mix of genomics, biochemistry, and genetics. They analyzed the river lamprey, a member of the jawless vertebrate clade most distant from mammals. It was already known that important regulatory elements for expression of the genes encoding alpha-globin subunits in humans and mice are within introns of the nearby NPRL3 gene which encodes a widely expressed protein that is part of a complex regulating mTOR signaling. In the study reported in blood, the team assembled a DNA sequence of the globin gene locus from the river lamprey, which contained six Hb genes. The lamprey Hb locus turned out to share an uncanny range of structural and functional properties with the NPRL3-linked Hb locus in jawed vertebrates. 
Chromatin accessibility mapping and functional analysis using reporter genes demonstrated that an erythroid-specific enhancer is located in intron 7 of the LAMPRI NPRL3 gene. Thus, the same feature is important for regulating high-level expression of HB genes in both major branches of vertebrates. In other words, as noted in an accompanying commentary by Ross Hardison from Pennsylvania State University in the United States, an NPRL3 gene with a strong regulatory element became linked to at least two different ancestral globin genes in the common ancestor to vertebrates. Each of these ancestral globin genes then evolved independently while maintaining strong regulation from the NPRL3 intronic enhancer. This occurred during the enormous diversification of animals in the seas of the Cambrian period, but prior to the divergence of jawless and jawed vertebrates. This study illustrates how gene regulatory elements can be deeply preserved over evolutionary time. This fascinating study also inspires more questions, including how did the globin gene clusters arise within each branch of vertebrates? And how were globins adapted to different functions across different branches? Only careful comparative biochemical and functional analyses of globin genes will lead us to the answers. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.